Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to Unexplained Extra, with me, Richard McLean Smith, where for the weeks in between episodes, we look at stories and ideas that for one reason or other, didn't make it into the previous show. In last week's episode, How the Wind Does Scream, we ventured into the mysterious wilds of the Nahani Valley in Canada's Northwest Territories, which in the early 20th century was the scene of a number of strange and unsettling deaths. Roughly 20 years after the death of the McLeod brothers, whose story we explored in the episode, news broke again from out of the Northwest Territories of yet another beguiling mystery that was striking fear into the hearts of any who had reason to find themselves in the area at the time. It is known today as the story of the Mad Trapper of Rat River. The man was first said to have been sighted sometime in the afternoon of August 21st, 1927, at the Ross River trading post, located at the junction of the Ross and Pelly Rivers in southern Yukon. Appearing as if from nowhere, wearing the standard, coarsely materialed trapper's garb, and carrying only a backpack and a hunting rifle, he promptly set up camp on the outskirts of the rudimentary settlement, The following day, having not said a word to anyone, the man, who was five foot ten, with thick brown hair and piercing icy green eyes, stepped into the post's Taylor and Drury trading store. Inside, trapper Otto Paulson and store clerk Roy Buttle had been deep in conversation when the sudden appearance of the man caught them off guard. The man, they later said, had an undeniable presence, hard and resolute, and those eyes, when they looked at you, as Paulson later said, made you feel as though ice water had just been poured down your back. 
Saying nothing, the man walked up to the counter and handed a note to Buttle, on which was written a short list of items, including tea and bacon and six boxes of kidney pills, amongst other things. Unable to stand the awkward silence any more, Buttle asked the man cheerily where he was from, to which he replied simply, Nowhere. After bagging up the items as quickly as he could, Buttle then asked the man for $49, at which he then pulled out two enormous wads of cash from his pockets, somewhere in the region of $6,000, pulled out a $50 note and placed it on the counter. Just then, two seven-year-old First Nation boys ran into the store brandishing a nickel which they'd likely found in the dirt outside. The stranger watched as they dashed excitedly over to the sweet counter. Buttle called out for him to take his change. The man slowly turned back, pointed a finger at the coins on the counter, and then pointed to the two young boys. And with that, he took his things and left. In a community as small as Ross Rivers, word inevitably spread about the unsettling loner who'd set up camp in their mists with piles of cash in his pockets. A few days later, local Royal Canadian Mounted Police Corporal Claude Tidd, who'd been away on patrol duty, arrived back to find his community deeply troubled by the man's arrival and vowed to speak to him to find out what he was doing there and just how he'd come into so much money. That afternoon, he headed out to the man's camp to do just that, only to find it was deserted. Over the next few years, there was only one recorded sighting of the man from when he stayed a few days in Fraser Falls, about 130 miles northwest of Ross River. He gave his name to the owner of the cabin he rented as Albert Johnson and is said to have spent most of his time there lying alone in his bunk, staring up at the ceiling. In his absence, people began to talk. Anyone who lived or trapped in Yukon or Northwest Territories, where the man was mostly thought to roam, was warned to stay clear of him, while some claimed that he had a nasty habit of stealing gold teeth from the mouths of men, dead or alive. In spring 1930, the so-called Johnson was alleged to have shown up in Fort Reliance, close by to the camp of two trappers, Emil Bode and Jan Olsen. A few months later, three miles south of the Thelon River, He is said to have arrived at a cabin belonging to one Steve Bradley, a man he knew to be a friend of Bode and Olson's. According to Bradley, Johnson claimed to have some important business to settle with the two trappers and asked Bradley if he knew where they were. Thinking nothing of it at the time, Bradley informed him that they were camping out in Granite Falls about 65 miles away. 
Johnson thanked him for the information and then disappeared once again. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life, but when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easy to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Just fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist today, and you can switch therapists anytime, if you so wish. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com unexplained10 today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash unexplained one zero. During a brief stop in Fort McPherson on the banks of the Peel River in the Northwest Territories in July 1931, after once again unsettling the locals with his stern and solitary manner, the man was warned by local Mountie, Edgar Millen, that he would need to buy a license if he wanted to continue trapping in the area. Johnson moved on at the end of the month, having likely ignored Millen's request. A summer slipped inexorably from autumn, then to winter, with all about then covered in ice and snow. It was sometime in December when four young Gwich'in trappers turned up at the Canadian Mounted Police Post on the Arctic Red River, about 35 miles east of Fort McPherson, to complain about a strange white man who'd been throwing away their bait and sabotaging their traps. They believed the man's name was Albert Johnson. Two Mounties, Alfred King and Joseph Bernard, were quickly dispatched from a clavic the largest settlement in the region, about 60 miles to the north, to investigate. The following morning, on December 28th, about 15 miles up the Rat River, they came across a strange-looking cabin. Covered in snow and sunk a good few feet into the ground, it appeared to be more like the abode of some strange woodland creature rather than that of a grown human. Nonetheless, smelling coffee and bacon cooking from inside, it seemed reasonable to assume they'd found who they were looking for. King approached the cabin on his own and knocked on the door, but whoever was inside simply ignored him. Realising the man had no interest in playing ball, the officers had no choice but to return to a clavic to get a search warrant. And so, after making the arduous 150-mile round trip, they returned a few days later, accompanied by another two officers for backup. Once again, King knocked on the door. Only this time, he made it clear that if the man didn't come out of his own accord, he would be forced to break down his door and drag him out. A short silence ensued, 
as Officer Bernard and his two colleagues watched on from about 30 yards away, when all of a sudden, a shot rang out from inside the cabin, and King fell to the floor, clutching his chest. Bernard and the two other officers immediately opened fire on the cabin, but as shards of wood went flying and the smoke eventually settled, all of it was to no avail when another volley of bullets came straight back at them from inside it. Realising the cabin had been expertly made with this exact scenario in mind, complete with shooting holes dotted all around it, the Mounties were forced to retreat. Having returned to a clavic, Constable King was treated for his wounds while the head of the mounted police for the region, Inspector Alexander Eames, pondered over the best course of action. In the end, he decided to go himself to the cabin, accompanied by four officers, three trappers and 20 pounds of dynamite. On January the 9th, 1932, as Eames and his men approached the cabin, its door was kicked open suddenly, revealing Albert Johnson standing in the doorway with two revolvers in his hands, and then he opened fire. For the next few hours, Johnson single-handedly fought off the eight men until sometime after 3am, when Eames instructed two of them to blow his cabin to smithereens. A few minutes later, Eames watched from the darkness as a huge explosion ripped off the cabin roof. Believing the man, if he'd survived at all, would be seriously wounded, Eames and the others then advanced on the cabin, only to be pegged back once more by gunfire. By the time they were able to get close to the cabin again, Johnson had disappeared. It was sometime in January when a trapper named Clark Croft, working an area by the Thelon River, discovered two bodies frozen in the snow. The bodies were later identified as trappers Emil Bode and Jan Olsen, the two men whom Albert Johnson had been looking for back in July 1930 on account of having some unfinished business with them. By this time, Johnson had vanished again, but now he was a fugitive from the law, wanted for the attempted murder of a Mountie. After weeks spent searching for him, a four-man team, which included Corporal Edgar Millen, who'd ordered Johnson a few years before to buy a trapping license, eventually tracked him down to the banks of a creek close to the Northwest Territories and Yukon border. When they heard a man coughing from just inside the tree line next to the creek, Millen and his team shot blindly into the trees for 20 minutes solid, until finally a pained cry was followed by the sound of something heavy crashing down into the bush. After waiting the best part of an hour to make sure the man was fully incapacitated, Corporal Millen decided finally to head into the trees and pull him out. He'd not made it five meters when a gunshot suddenly rang out from the trees in front of him. Then Millen spun around and fell onto the snow, 
as the others watched on in horror. While two of the men returned fire, a third managed to pull Millen to safety, only to find that he was already dead. When the team then tried to find Johnson, he was long gone. One night in early February, in a cabin by a creek just 12 miles east of Yukon, George Case, who'd crossed paths a few times with the enigmatic Johnson, was just preparing a pot of tea when there was a knock at the door. Case opened it, startled to find his old companion, Albert Johnson, standing in the freezing cold outside, looking a little more tired and thinner than he'd remembered. Having heard all the reports about him on the news, Case thought it perhaps best to invite the man in. As George Case later recalled, according to one colourful account of the story written by Thomas Kelly, the night Johnson turned up at his door, the pair of them shared some food, after which Case played some harmonica as Johnson sang a haunting, melancholic song with what Case described as one of the finest baritone voices he'd ever heard. And later... He asked the impenetrable Johnson if all the rumours about him were true. Did he really kill men for their gold teeth? To which Johnson replied, with a little sparkle in those icy green eyes of his, that Case would have to work that one out for himself. Then, coughing heavily into a bandana, perhaps aware that his time on earth was steadily drawing to a close, the man became unusually talkative. By way of explanation for all that had happened, he told Case that when he was 20 and his mother only 38, she had been killed. Johnson described her as a wealthy and beautiful woman whom he'd loved dearly. Without going into too much detail, he said he'd exacted revenge on the person who'd killed her. After that, with his mother gone, Life had seemed completely pointless and that he'd grown to disdain virtually anyone who was alive since it wasn't fair to him that anyone else should be allowed to live when she had had to die. Then Johnson finished his tea and went to bed. The next morning he asked Case if he needed any money but Case claimed to have declined the offer. As Johnson left his cabin he felt compelled to ask if the man would be okay alone out there, to which he replied that he was never alone, since he always had the spirit of his mother with him wherever he went. On February 16th, a Royal Canadian Mounted Police search party, aided by a search plane, managed to track Johnson down near the banks of the Eagle River, about 12 miles to the west of the Northwest Territories and Yukon border. A heavy gunfight ensued, during which Johnson seriously injured another two officers, but was eventually pushed back and cornered behind a boulder on the banks of the frozen river. With officers approaching on all sides, and the search plane swooping round overhead, the so-called Albert Johnson 
had nowhere to go. He died moments later in a hail of bullets. When police were finally able to examine his body, they found he was carrying almost $2,500 in cash, a compass, some hunting equipment, a dead squirrel, and a dead bird, as well as a jar of pearls and a jar of gold teeth. No identification was found or papers of any kind, meaning his true identity has never been established, with many suggesting that Albert Johnson had been a name that he made up for himself. Tests conducted on the gold teeth revealed that they were most likely to have been his own. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.